from the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford. This is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons. Thank you, Jesse. Hi, everyone. It is Connie Kuntz, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It's April. We have a new writer here, and she's named Bahia El Shabazz. She's standing right next to me. Hello, Bahia. Hi, Connie. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Everyone, Bahia is about to share the first trimester of her pregnancy from her essay, The Parts. Now we have a little warning about kids and whether or not they should listen. And Bahia, will you speak to that? It may not be for young children. Um, I think it's probably up to parents, but um, it is about a pregnancy. And some other things that are in there might not be for children. Okay, sounds good. All right, parents, it's your discretion. Let's go. April. It's early April, and for now my tummy is a valley. By the summer it will be a bunny hill. By mid-fall a mountain. I desperately want time to take a big fat break. Slow way down. It could even stand still forever. Go back. Anything except continue clicking, bringing on what's coming. It's not so much the skin stretching or the puking of it, or even the labor or the end of my life. I mostly just don't want to have to tell anyone ever. But I've decided. I can't, won't, absolutely will not erase this. I did that once already, only last summer. And here I am, not even a year later and no better off. Worse even. In a lot of ways, it would have been better to have kept the first. But I didn't. And now I'm crying quietly through my lit glass. My soft-spoken teacher keeps me after dismissing the others. I assume because she saw the tears, or because for the second time this week I've fallen asleep on my arm during her lecture. Are you all right? Everything okay? Yes, fine. Just tired. I push out a smile. She smile frowns, tilts her head. Okay, she says, unconvinced. I'm looking down at my toes, shifting, actively avoiding her concern. Well, try and get some rest. I nod. I feel the waves starting. She touches my shoulder and lets me go. I stop in the hall and breathe for a minute until the storm passes. I haven't thrown up yet, and I don't plan to. Sometimes I lie on my back in my bra, place my hand on my middle, and try to sense what's going on underneath it. All my movement must be a roller coaster ride, all my muffled sounds a lullaby. Sometimes I give myself a migraine, thinking so hard on the person in there, how she has no idea what awaits, how she doesn't even know how small she is, or what's all around her, or who she's being carried around inside, or what being inside someone means. If I could switch places, I would, even just for a day, or a few minutes. I'd curl up in the warm, silky dark close my eyes. From out here, it seems perfectly still, like no one is in there, like maybe this isn't happening. But of course it is. Microscopic body parts are materializing. Now she is only a ball of cells, but soon she'll be everything. 
brain and knees and hands and mouth and heart. Someone I'll love forever, forming from a speck. A meteor coming straight from my life. One day, I'm sure being a mommy is going to be amazing. Random cookie baking and rainy summer days, reading Frog and Toad, cuddled under a fort and feeding duck stale bread, and spinning in a living room, finding stories and clouds and stars. A long day ending with a chubby cheek smashed against my shoulder, little warm arms clasped around my neck. But first, I have to catch a bus home and break the news to my parents. First, I have to figure out what the hell I do between this point and that. I'm 20. I have two more years ahead of college in Chicago, but no job or good friends or apartment here, so I guess I have to go home. I'm currently not speaking to the father. He may or more likely may not be around. But my mind's set. I'm doing this. I am. I did dumb things on top of dumber things. I didn't learn. I did not break or turn around. But now I will rapidly. No more tripping, chasing love down. If I'm lucky, it's a girl. Then it won't matter if I stay single forever. If soulmates don't even exist anyway. If I'm never loved the way I now realize only happens to my mother and women in movies. I'll just make myself want something else. We'll be more girly than I've ever been on my own. Shopping to cure our blues. She'll be my tiny sidekick and I'll grow up alongside her. I go home. Instead of a bus, my brother offers to pick me up. He's transferred from a school in the middle of rural Illinois to one in the northern Chicago suburbs, and unlike me, he hardly ever goes home, so he's due for a visit. Sometimes I forget that he's so close to me, because for a while now we've been far apart. I came here to crumble their lives in their hands, but two days pass and I stare across the table at my dad sipping coffee and reading the funnies, convulsing with laughter that makes him take off his glasses and reread the punchline out loud to the room. And I think about just telling them next time, or the next, or the next. Maybe just waiting for my growing belly to tell them, for them to ask after they already know. Sunday, after dinner, when my dad slips out to the hardware store, I stand in the hall that leads to where my mom stands in the kitchen, psych myself up like a boxer, take three big breaths in a row. When I was 11 and got my period, I was too embarrassed to tell her, so I hid it for over a year, rolling up toilet paper to make my own pads, sometimes taking my friend's big sister's winged maxis from under their sinks. I stuffed the evidence deep down into our kitchen garbage, covered it up with food wrappers and paper towels placed just so. I wonder now if my nervousness causes tidal waves or tsunamis in her water world. Mom, I say, can I talk to you real quick upstairs? Inside my old bedroom, we sit a foot apart. My brother is under us eating cereal, waiting impatiently to take us both back to the city, to our one-room high-rise homes. So what's up, she asks, her face reddening fast. I'm already bawling, which triggers the tears to fill up in her eyes. Nothing, I say, looking away from her, wiping my cheeks hard. Except I'm pregnant, I practically scream at her. She closes her eyes, and all she says is a sigh, 
long and knowing. The worst is over. A little relief trickles through me. It's out there, filling the house like smoke, getting away from me. So now I can never change my mind. My wailing turns to sniffling and soft shuddering. You know, she says, I thought you were pregnant last summer. I was, I sigh. But you lost it? She wants to believe that, and I could let her. But I tell her quickly, I had an abortion, and watch out of the corner of my eye as it hits her hard. After a while, she says, you must have been really desperate to have done that. I can't believe how well she is containing herself, that for once in her life she isn't sobbing harder than me. Since she sat down, she's been keeping them ready, but she has not let a tear go. I was, I say, which makes me cry all over again, just after I plug myself up. She watches me cry for a while, tells me she's sorry, sighs some more, tries to look into me, but I don't let her. This is probably one of the only times she's seen me really cry, since I was a kid who wore big glasses and bawled about everything. She asks about my plan, but I can't answer her, because I'm too upset and because I don't have one. Okay, she says firmly, like we've made some kind of pact. She agrees to be the one to tell my father tonight after I'm gone. May. Already she's grown from nothing into something the size of a kidney bean, but I can't feel a thing. I have a black history class that meets in a basement all the way across campus, a half-hour walk. I look forward to the escape of four-hour classes, especially this one, the past opening its arms like a wide-bosomed grandma, embracing me and my entire Tuesday afternoon. The teacher is a big-bellied man with a radio voice and thicker-than-ever glasses. He instantly puts me at ease. He doesn't exactly remind me of my father, but he does seem like someone who would be my father's friend. I can easily picture him in our living room, leaned in, passionately dissecting philosophies and sipping coffee, shaking the walls with his laugh. I had him last semester, too, earned an A, and he has decided I have potential. For exactly what, I don't know or ask. His class fulfills a requirement, but I love it anyway. I speed walk to get there on time. Outside, it is an unusually hot spring, and the thick air is juicy with the scent of demon dogs. Inside these hours, it is cool and dark, even with all the lights on, as we carefully revisit the tortures of slavery. My teacher and half of me are the only black people in the class, and for blocks and blocks. The other students nod off a lot and ask questions you'd expect from fifth graders. I want to drink a tall glass of his patience. I tear through incidents in the life of a slave girl and thirst for more. He hands me Frederick Douglass, a book not assigned. By most of the class, the weekly quiz is failed again and again. He starts grading on the curve, but my 100% ruins it for everyone. My hand stays raised. I am not like this in other classes. You have so much potential. He keeps me behind after class to pump me up. He suggests that I apply for an internship for black students who excel in intellect. Are you interested? My nod is a lie. He doesn't know that this semester is it for me. By the fall, I'll be preparing for birth. I'll get you the information by next week. 
His big, heavy hand clasps my shoulder and squeezes like I make him proud. Henry Box Brown sealed himself in a wooden postal package and sent himself to freedom, wadded up for 300 miles like a fetus. Harriet Tubman escaped from slavery, snuck back into it 13 times to rescue her whole family and hundreds of others, led them all those miles with her head condition giving her constant pain and making her faint at random. It's amazing how much my people have done and how little I even try to do. So much potential. Such a waste. When I see my brother again, he's talked to my mom, he knows. I don't even want to hear what he has to say. I just think, he starts, as I roll my eyes out my window. Everyone makes mistakes. It's just that some people's are secret and some are easy to see. Quick as an eclipse, it's coming over me, this feeling of regret. I've blown so many years, all the books I could have devoured in this time, the languages I might have mastered, the cooking and playing and dancing and swimming, the talking and listening I could have done. I regret only pretending to read the Iliad, settling for a C in high school chemistry, quitting my horses. I was supposed to be a gold medalist in the Olympics by now. For years, I've given everything to boys I loved. Sometimes I've given it all to just the promise or hopes of them. I should have been filling myself to the brim with the world, but instead I've only been leaking. My teacher thinks I'm full of potential, intelligence and maturity and good sense, but he has no idea. If he shook me, he'd hear the emptiness rattling around. But there's something better in me now, growing, going through the stages of evolution, webbed fingers, even shedding a tail, right under my skin. Soon I will be filled up, literally, taken over entirely by this baby. My mom says that when she told my dad, he went silent for the rest of the night. Then the next morning, he said he couldn't stay mad. She's always been my little princess, she claims he told her, which made me twitch. I wonder if she made that line up. It's been a long time since I felt like his princess. Mid-May, here comes my self-pity-peppered monologue and stumbled exit from Chicago, banishment back into small city nothingness. Maybe it won't be that dramatic, but I'd kind of like it to be. I know what my problem is. I know what every girl's problem is. I've spent a lot of time in my dorm, ignoring my term papers and reading assignments, drumming beats on myself, hoping she hears. I figured it out. The phenomenon of good girl loving bad boy. It's all because of the yearning to be special that we harbor inside, one we're born with like our eggs. A nice guy falls for everyone, so when I'm with one, I feel like I could be anyone else, which makes me itch to be noticed, makes me want to bang my head against a wall. But with a man who is quick to anger and slow to smile, who treats women like disposable napkins, when he lets us in, we feel set apart lifted high. My roommate gets a call in the middle of the night and stretches her long, curly phone cord into the hallway to talk. The next day, her eyes are red as she tells me there's an emergency back home. She's leaving early and won't be back. She's taking the television. 
When I come back from class, the Kevin Spacey poster is gone, her desk and mattress blank and cold. I push her long, skinny bed over to mine to make a decent-sized one. I go home every weekend, where I stay sucked into one TV or the other, even when nothing good is on. It's a way of avoiding all conversation and eye contact, a way of numbing late at night, when all I do is think in a circle, sit up, lay down, and cry. I come home because without my roommate or classes to cut up my day, my silent third-story dorm room with the city bustling and honking and partying below me is too lonely to take. I feel locked away, but not in a romantic way. I know there is no prince coming. I don't want to interact with anyone, but I need them there, walking by, eating behind my head, coloring in my background. The house feels different than it ever felt, like a plastic replica of the place I used to run from my brother through. I will myself to get used to it, dig in, get nice and comfy, because in three weeks, this is where I will have to park myself. We haven't talked about me returning to school, how I'll pay for daycare or anything. It's easy to go an entire weekend without meeting my dad's gaze, because he seems to be avoiding physical and all other forms of contact with me anyway. My mom picks me up alone. She's always the one who tells me it's time for dinner, tells me when they're going somewhere and when they'll be home, says goodnight for the two of them. While he works on the yard or his computer upstairs, she joins me on the itchy gray couch I helped pick out when I was 10, and we laugh at the plot twists of made-for-TV movies. I commentate nonstop on the overacting, the dialogue pulled out of a grab bag of cliches, the transparency of the supposedly secret villains, afraid that a silent spot might be seen as an invitation for her to tell or ask me something. If I can't think of anything clever to say, I just get up and get food. Even when I'm not hungry, I think the baby must be in need of something all the time. I stay as long as I can, until after Sunday night dinner, which I eat with my eyes down, or better yet, take to the couch. She drives me to a bus that takes me an hour closer to the city. I walk through the airport to a train, ride an hour into Lincoln Park, then drag my bag a quarter mile to my dorm. When I get into my dark, empty room, it's 10 or 11 sometimes. As I unpack, I see the food she stuffed inside my bag, bananas for potassium, and tuna for protein, and apples for everything, and the sight of it spilling out makes me bend over and breathe in and out real slow. I stop feeling sorry for myself, abruptly. I stop crying all the damn time. In statistics class, I sit pretending to take notes, as if I'm not writing and reading and rewriting and rereading a Gwendolyn Brooks poem called The Mother that I've memorized. It's actually about the opposite of being a mother, about giving it up, and all the other things sucked up and thrown out, along with the actual body of the baby. You will never wind up the sucking thumb or scuttle off ghosts that come. You will never neglect or beat or silence them or buy with a sweet. You will never leave them, controlling your luscious sigh. Return for a snack of them with gobbling mother's eye. The words stab and heal me, making me sad for what I did, 
but more sure of what I'm doing. Some windy evenings, I walk off campus, imagine myself in the tall brick, softly lit bungalows with a husband and a horde of kids. Just for five minutes, I let myself want it. Then I shake off that dream. I get a smoothie and roam the children's section of a bookstore, scribbling on a paper the titles that look intellectually stimulating for my mini-me. Back in my room, I make lists of Arabic girl names, classes she can take when she turns three. I research daycares, just in case I ever get to come back. I visit one right on the edge of campus, where every sparkling toy and blanket and toddler table looks brand new. They tell me that the cost is $60 a day, which I will never have, but they have a few spots for low-income parents. They charge them nearly nothing. Right now, those spots are taken, but in a year, who knows? Maybe it could be me. I window shop for little dresses that look like frosting and hot pink strollers. I eat better and sleep less. I pass my finals and end up with two Bs and three As. I'm just very proud of you, my mother croaks over the phone. When I got pregnant, I tried, but I was failing everything, so I dropped out. With your situation this semester, I don't know how you pulled off these grades. This makes me smile, but I would never want her to know that. A depression was peeking over my horizon, but I just blew it away. I will not be brought down by this baby. I will be the best single 21-year-old mother ever made. June. It's June and she's three inches long now, has fingerprints, and we're headed home. Both parents come to pick me up with all my things in bags and boxes. My dad makes the trips up and back down, tells me not to lift anything. The two-hour ride home is silent, so I sleep. I settle in. Maybe I'll never feel settled, but I unpack my things and clothes and fill up my old dusty room again. I tread as lightly as I can around their house, as if someone is constantly sleeping. I don't want to make too much noise, be too much of a presence, be any worse to deal with than I already am. They have brand new hardwood floors, a new refrigerator, a new air in the house. I miss the ugly brown carpet with all our memories stained into it. Actually, for the first time since I outgrew them, I miss everything. Watching Nickelodeon shows back to back on a Saturday and burning my stomach on our slip and slide. Running through the front door and out the back with wet feet. Eating fruit flat and long like tape measures having crushes on boys and never telling them. I go to an office in the dingy part of town, tell a woman in a gray suit an abridged version of my story, and she signs me up for grocery coupons I'm beyond embarrassed to use. But it's my only way to contribute at least a little instead of only consuming. Now every week, I go get two gallons of milk, Cheese, tuna, peanut butter, juice, and boring brands of cereal. All with no money. But when I have to hand over the long, flimsy coupon to the cashier in front of the bag boy and the lady behind me, you could cook breakfast on my cheeks. 
The coupons are meant for struggling single mothers, and I refuse to see myself that way. My parents have sort of saved me from the first half of that fate, but still, my mom says, I fit the requirement, and we're not nearly rich enough to pass up food that's for free. Sometimes my parents' shiny new refrigerator almost can't hold all the charity. My mom told her parents, and they didn't say much. Asked a few questions, sighed a lot. My dad called his parents, but thankfully not until after we visited for Mother's Day. My crazy grandpa probably just laughed it off with his tongue out, made a joke, and clapped his hands. I think he's probably never been serious for more than a minute of his life. I don't know what my grandma said. She's used to her granddaughters knocking themselves up like it's the latest craze. There are only four of us, and now three of us will be mothers, none of us married. We aren't close anyway. I'm not sure what she could really say. But I'd guess she's surprised, as I was seemingly on such a different path. Growing up, my dad mostly kept us away, afraid of too much influence from the city and his family, something she cried about. Maybe deep inside she's thinking, ha ha ha. Once, a few years ago, out of nowhere... When everyone was in the other room eating, my grandma whispered that the biggest regret of her life was marrying my grandpa. My first thought was that, by default, she regretted all of our existences. I didn't say anything, just nodded and listened for more, but she rubbed her knees for a minute, got up and walked away. I was pissed at her for a long time after that. Now I feel sorry for her. She's smart and wanted to be a lawyer despite the fact that she attended a one-room schoolhouse in southern Illinois. Her daddy was a sharecropper and sometimes kept his five kids home from school because he needed their extra hands for picking. They weren't allowed to keep any part of the money that they bent over all day cutting open their hands for. He took it all. He needed every penny to care for them and the other secret family that he had down the road. They would clean houses for $1.50 each on Sundays. And that money they could keep, a quarter for each day to buy two small hamburgers and a pop for lunch during the week. She had a sister who would always spend her quarter on the jukebox, then come sit next to my grandma, clutching her stomach, giving her doe eyes. My grandma couldn't stand to see her hungry, even knowing she'd done it to herself. So she handed over one burger and shared half of her soda every time. They rode in the back of his truck, standing to make room for the other families he picked up on the way to the field. He didn't allow his wife, my great-grandma Franklin, to ride in the cab with him. One day, he had a corner going too fast, and the crowd all fell on top of each other. My great-grandma came out of the pileup with a broken collarbone. He wouldn't or couldn't pay for a doctor, so she had to suck it up and tell her bones to solder themselves. One morning, when my grandma was 13, she hopped down out of the truck bed and told him that she was going to school instead of picking. He told her to get her ass back in. He was a big man, the spitting image of my towering Uncle Vince, strong without having to try to be. He smacked my grandma, loaded her back in the truck bed bleeding, but she jumped out again. He hit her harder, threw her in. But before he could take off, she was back on the ground. It happened over and over until eventually he gave up, the sun rising too high, and maybe, I like to think, tired of hurting her. 
He drove off as she walked towards the schoolhouse. The teacher said that if he ever sent her to school looking like that again, she'd call the police. She didn't miss any more school. When my mom first told me her story, I was in the fourth grade, shyer than it was okay to be, always been over with my eyes down. Knowing that this kind of woman was in my blood made me straighten a little. I even stood in front of my white class and told them about her, talking right through my nervous stomach ache. No one said anything or asked questions, but I didn't care. I figured they were jealous that they had no one as oppressed and brave in their lineage. I was so swollen up with the heroic part of her story that for so long I didn't bother to wonder about the rest of it, what happened, why she wasn't a lawyer already. Now that I'm older, pregnant and disenchanted enough, my mom tells me. In her tiny hometown, when she was 17, my grandma was raped by her gynecologist during an exam. He was white, so she definitely couldn't tell anyone. To escape him, she took the first rope she was thrown. My silly, sweet, drinking and gambling grandpa. He promised that if she'd marry him, he'd take her away. They moved to Chicago, lived in the veterans' public housing on 39th and Lake Park. Now they are condos, but back then they were projects. By the time she was 23, she had three sons and a job at a television factory. My grandpa drove a school bus. She put my grandpa on an allowance so he wouldn't drink or lose the little they had. Once, he came home from a card game, and she found a deed he didn't even know that he'd won. She tucked it away. Eventually, she sold that land and bought a tiny house in the suburbs with a profit and made a little life there. She got a new job as a housekeeper for lawyers on the North Shore. Sometimes I can't imagine that I'll ever find myself cleaning up after the people I want to be. But if she could be worn down by motherhood after taking jabs to the face for the chance at something more, who can say what will happen to me, who has never really fought for anything? Bahia. Yes. What a story. Thank you. What a way to be 20 years old. Are you a fighter? I think I am. I think I'm a quiet fighter, mm-hmm. but I think so. How, when did you find out you are a fighter? Probably when I was pregnant. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably when I figured that out. Tell me about people who seem like fighters to you. Hmm. Almost every woman I know, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, so many people. I feel like almost everybody is in a different in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, famous people or just just anybody who strikes anybody. you as a role model who's fighty who's not just your grandmother or every hmm. you know friend or not just a friend you're saying not just friends but somebody who's like famous or oh man um, these kids that are coming out with mm-hmm. from um, you know from Park Parkland the Marjorie Stoneman Academy the Parkland Parkland the, yes. the, the, yeah all those kids and mm-hmm. all the a lot of teenagers, like, recently have been inspiring me, like, mm-hmm. um, all the black teenagers that stood up for um, Mike Brown mm-hmm. and protests. And, I mean, teenagers in early 20s, um, the Parkland students. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would have been able to stand up like that when I was their age. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so like lately, those are the people in the like in the public eye that have been inspiring me and me think of a fighter. That's what I wonder, because you do seem like somebody who's always observing and always seeing the strengths mm. in other people. So I just wanted to touch on that just a little mm. bit. Conversely, I want to know who you don't think is a fighter, who's <sighs> in the public eye, who has potential, a funny word that comes up in this essay. Mm-hmm. Who is not a fighter? Um, I, it's A famous person is not a fighter. Oh, my president. I mean, almost all of Congress, mm-hmm. people who um, who aren't really fighting for anything would, yeah, like most uh, most of the government. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel weird, like, because I don't feel like I know, you know a lot of celebrities, I don't even know, you know, what they're, what they're really doing. Like, I know my, my husband, for example, knows a lot of celebrities and will tell me things they're doing that no one knows they're doing behind mm-hmm. the scenes. And they may appear like they're doing a lot of things to help other people, but they are. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, the first people that come to mind, when I think of people who are not a fighter in the public eye would definitely be politicians, mm-hmm. Congress. Mm-hmm. When did you first develop that political appetite? Because you're very mm-hmm. eloquent when it comes to politics. When did that spark in you? Hmm. Um, it's funny because I don't think of myself as very political, even though, I mean, I, yeah, like, I guess social, like, activism, but I'm really bad at politics, like, knowing who politicians are, probably because I just don't really have faith in almost any of them. <laughs> but um, but as far as issues, I think from when I was, probably after I became a mother, really, like, I don't think as a, well, we didn't have the internet, of course, either, but as a kid... And a teenager, I don't remember really being very aware of what was going on politically. I remember things like the Berlin Wall on TV, or my mother told me about apartheid. Um, but it was here and there, and I don't remember being very much aware. And like when I was older, I can't think of an example, but there's been things I know that I've learned that happened when I was a kid that I had no idea about mm-hmm. were happening. I think that's... So my kids now know not everything, but a lot of things, probably mostly because of social media and the internet. Is that a choice that you made to make sure your kids are very aware? Um, I would say that I don't hide things from them, but I don't also tell them about everything because I don't want them to be burdened by it and feel like there's no hope. If I told them everything I see on my Facebook feed, for example, mm-hmm. they would, you know, I especially have one kid that gets very stressed very easily and very worried very easily. So um, but they do know the general. They know about school shootings. They know about um, Black Lives Matter. They know about the Me Too movement. So yeah, I do. And I'm, I usually maybe show them a video and talk to them about it. But I don't. I don't constantly talk about it in front of them. I don't want them to be. It just dawned on me. Some mm-hmm. of our listeners may not know that you have children. I do. I have five. Five children. Mm-hmm. And is your warrior? Is that Kalam? My warrior, yeah. I wonder. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the ages of each of your kids. So Nasir, who is the one that is um, my first kid, the one from the story, is 15. Kalam is 11. Apreya is 8, almost 9. Cairo is 6, almost 7. And Ashira is 3. That's wonderful. Uh, who are the writers in your kids? <clears throat> there was a while that Apreya, who's the eight-year-old, the, um, she decided she was going to be a writer because I am, and my my mom, her grandma is, and her dad is a songwriter. Um, for a little while, she thought she might be, but I haven't seen her have an interest in it 
after that. But actually, Kalam recently, who he can't, um, he couldn't read fiction until recently because it was he would always be finding what made no sense to him. Like <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. And so he would stop reading books all the time. And when if I was reading to all of them, he would have to just leave the room because he couldn't take it. But recently, he's been. Um, Getting into reading fiction more, him and I are reading um, The Children of Blood and Bone together, which is a fantasy story, and he's been writing a story, and he's been um, making up all these characters for it, and he's also got into drawing the last year, so actually, yeah, I think he's the most okay. writerly inclined. Mother of five, when do you find time to write, and what's your favorite time to write? Hmm. I um, imagine they're two different things. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. I My favorite time to write is during the day. I had a strategy of um, writing when they were sleeping, but a lot of times I get to the point where they're all asleep and then I'm so tired I don't want to or I do it, but it's I don't really like what I'm writing. And I so actually I've been trying to write first thing in the morning um, before we start because I homeschool them as well. So I usually try to wake up and write for about an hour first thing. In your essay, the teacher, the prof, refers to you with potential, having potential, almost that it's irritating to hear it. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be told that at age 20 when you had this secret going on inside you? Just going back in time a lot right now. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Can you tell us, being a student in busy Chicago and having this busyness inside you Mm -hmm. and being told you have potential, I want to hear a little bit more about that. I think um, at that time it made me feel sad because I felt like uh, like when he told me to apply for the internship and I told him I would and I wanted to, but I also d- I never did because I knew it was for like the fall, coming fall, and I knew I wasn't going to be in school anymore. I wasn't sure if I was going to come back to school. Um, I also, and I didn't, I was, for, at the time I was going to school for um, education, oh, okay. um, which... I only did because in high school I knew I wanted I knew I wanted to be a writer from when I was like seven, and I used to write really bad poetry in high school. But I didn't <laughs> I didn't really write stories, but I knew I wanted to and I wanted to write a novel, and so that was my plan. But my guidance counselor at Auburn told me there was no program, undergrad program for writing, so <clears throat> I could maybe go into journalism or get an English degree and. Those didn't appeal to me, so I thought, well, I'll go get a teaching degree because I love to work with kids, and maybe I'll be a teacher and try to write in the summer. So after I um, dropped out of school for about a year and a half, um, I don't even remember how I found it, but I found out about Columbia College Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so I came back to school and ended up going for um, for creative writing. Cool. But So at the time when he told me that, I just remember thinking – I'm probably never going to go back to college. And I just had no idea what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. When you were pregnant, you were on the north side of Chicago in some dorms? Um, I was in a DePaul campus, okay. yeah, in some dorms on like Fullerton. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can picture that. Mm-hmm. And then when you went back to Columbia, were you in another dorm or did you have an apartment? You had an apartment. Okay, mm-hmm. right on. Now back to the dorm. This cracks me up. Mm-hmm. Your roommate had a poster of Kevin Spacey. Yeah. What for? Um, I mean, she loved him. I <laughs> She was a um, theater major, but not acting. She was um, like set design, I want to say. Okay. Um, she loved American Beauty, and it mm. was the 
it was a picture, an image of him from American Beauty. Okay. I love that film too. And mm-hmm. I love his performance in it. It's such an unusual poster. To it have, is. Yeah. It? <laughs> it's the only poster she had. Um, I think at the time I actually had not seen American Beauty okay. and I had to ask her who that, who even was, but I mean, later I did see it. Um, courses before everything people know about Kevin Spacey now. Yes. That was back in 2002. Okay. So yeah. What happened to the roommate? I mean, I know I she actually left. don't know. We, um, we were friendly with each other, but we never were that close. And mm-hmm. so we never, we didn't exchange phone numbers and she left and never came back. And I assumed it was something, maybe a death in the family, just because of how much she was crying and leaving suddenly. We only had like a month left of school, so okay. I don't know what happened. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, who were you closest to at this time in your life? Was it your friends? I remember you have Jenny. Uh-huh. And- I had oh. my um, Jenny was my one of my best friends. She um, was. What was she at? Was she in her freshman year of, of college? Yeah, she went to um, SIU. Mm-hmm. So she would have been in her freshman year that year. This is my sophomore year. Um, so she was at Southern Illinois, but then she was back in the summer. Um, I had, um, there's two, there's twins that were my close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Nikki, who's my friend since okay. I was little. Um, did they nurture you in this time or did you yeah. wait a little bit longer before you told them? Um, I don't remember when I told them. I told them during the first semester mm-hmm. um, and they were all supportive, yeah. Okay. What was the hardest part of that first trimester? Like, I would think, and I'm never right, but I would think it would be the back and forth between Rockford and Chicago, because that commute mm. stinks. It does, but I, I, that wasn't that hard for me. I mm-hmm. think I was, and I'd already actually been going home a lot on the weekend, before, even before I was pregnant. Um, but probably the worst part of that semester was just having to tell people, like I said, and mm-hmm. the story, and then the kind of getting used to everyone knowing, like after everyone knew, just kind of a little, I guess, awkwardness for a while. With mm-hmm. For me anyway, it might not have been for anyone else, but for me, even with my friends, no one was judgmental. Two of my friends already had babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember being kind of awkward and just not really want, wanting to be around people. Okay. What would you like your listeners to know before we wrap up this interview? Oh, um, I think... Um, the biggest thing is that hopefully when, so when you find out you're pregnant and it's unplanned and you're young, mm-hmm. hopefully you have a support system, but that people don't think that that means the end of their life or their education or that they can't go after the things they want. I remember, well, I mentioned in the story that I'd had an abortion the summer before this happened and the nurse at the clinic told me I was I was upset you know as it was happening and she told me not to worry that I was making a really good choice because nobody who had a baby ever finished college and I remember thinking at the time like I knew that wasn't true and it didn't make me feel better and I'm I think she really did believe that but I know it's not true not only from me but from people I know so I want to thank you for sharing this with us it takes a ton of courage to do what you do And I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I can't wait to see you next week for the second trimester. Thank you. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, the Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes. 
emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Kuntz. Thank you for listening. Now go write.